Hello and welcome to the National Secular Society podcast. I'm Chris Sloggett, Communications Officer at the NSS. In this episode, we'll discuss the need to repeal religious appointees' positions on council education committees in Scotland and other topics including advice on vaccinating children, faith schools which restrict families' privacy and the government's position on blasphemy laws. Firstly, the NSS has published a major report calling for the end of religious appointees on council education committees in Scotland. The report's been featured on the front page of The Times, and several councils are considering removing the appointees' voting privileges. I'm joined by Alistair Lichton, our education campaigner. Hello. Hey, Chris. So, Alistair, do you mind just running us through what's the law at the moment um, and how this situation came about, who these religious representatives are? So our report, which will be linked in the show notes, obviously, goes through the whole legislative history and the background of these religious appointees. The current law is based on uh, section 124, subsection 4 uh, of the Local Government uh, Scotland Act of 1973. And that requires local authorities in Scotland to include normally free, uh, unelected religious appointees on their education committees. These are usually the only unelected um, voting members and they can potentially influence wide aspects of education policy. Crucially, while the law requires councils to appoint these religious reps, it does seem to be clear that the voting privileges extended to them are a matter for each individual council to decide. So that's part of the right reason why this has come to the public attention now. Yeah, so it's the clarification that that is the Scottish government's legal opinion and that that is the opinion held uh, by organisations like the National Secular Society and a significant number of councils in Scotland. Uh, It's fair to say that this has been a long-running concern of the NSS and particularly our members and affiliates in Scotland. Uh, A lot of debate has been generated at different points, for example, by the 2013 and 2016 petitions to the Scottish Parliament on this matter. But what really brought it into public attention was Perth and King Ross uh, Council in April deciding to remove voting privileges from their unelected religious appointees. Now, this followed a very close vote to close a non-denominational school, which was swung by two of the three religious appointees. It was opposed by other unelected members of the council, but of course they didn't have voting powers. And so there was in- this intervention by the two religious appointees, which swung the vote. And obviously this created a local level, uh, particularly being a non-denominational school and religious appointees uh, getting involved, a lot of resentment. And that led to their decision then to uh, remove uh, the voting privileges. Uh, Since then, we've seen Edinburgh City Council bring forward proposals uh, to remove their voting privileges from religious appointees, and around eight other councils have told us that they may consider this in future. Okay, so uh, so if you just mind running us through what our report argues and, uh, and why. Well, we start by examining the history of the report and why it's there. Uh, We look at the positions of all 32 local authorities in Scotland and the arguments have been put forward for religious appointees and specifically for them also having voting privileges. And we actually make a very simple case. Scotland is a democracy and it has spent the last two centuries moving away from a sort of a hodgepodge of voluntary and charitable and religious schools towards a universal state education system. Now, even if we ignore the multiple overlapping and deeply entrenched protections for denominational schools in Scotland, 
if religiously motivated groups want to influence education policy, then they have every right to lobby and to campaign. Their members can go to public meetings, uh, seek elections, respond to consultations, volunteer on parent councils. They have all the same rights everyone else does. So they don't need a special extra seat at the table. Okay, so, and in, and in some cases, I suppose, if you think about what happened in Perth and Kinross, for example, um, the religious groups actually have the balance of power. Yes, so at the time of the 2013 uh, consultation, and it's, it's sometimes difficult to exactly measure this out, the church in, in Scotland estimated that they held the balance of power in 19 out of 32 local authorities. We should also say the influence and the inappropriate religious privilege extends far beyond simply voting rights. In fact, often these religious appointees won't vote. But simply by being given that privileged seat at the table, uh, by being involved, by having the prestige and a special access to power and influence that comes with it, means they get that inappropriate say, that you know extra inside say, that you know, so you or I, if we lived in Scotland and were to go along to one of these public meetings and you know put our hands up, we could put our hands up and speak, we could write to the council just like anyone else, but we wouldn't have that inside track. Mm. So yeah, so we are arguing that the best solution is for the Scottish government to repeal um, religious appointees' right to sit on uh, on the education committees entirely. But obviously we do welcome steps to remove their voting privileges because we think that's a step in the right direction. At the, ve- at the very least, uh, obviously we would like them to repeal the right to sit. Uh, at the very least, you know, letting councils make their own decision. If local authorities had some sort of open, uh, transparent uh, selection process and selective religious appointees, we would argue against that. But that would, you know, at least seem to be less um, in Congress than this being forced on them by, uh, you know, outdated legislation. Yep. Yep. Um, so, I mean, uh, just to think about what our opponents tend to come back with, uh, I mean, the report deals with quite a few of their arguments. I thought I'd pick out a couple. Um, I mean, they often, our opponents will often say that the representatives bring a particular moral insight. This is, this is one of the um, reasons why our opponents often argue for things like the establishment of the Church of England and bishops in the House of Lords as well. So they'll often say, well, the religious representatives bring a different moral insight, which, you know, which is valuable. Um, different, different, perhaps. You know, in this report, we've gone through the arguments uh, for religious appointees, and I hope that even if someone read the report and it's been sent to all councillors and MSPs, but even if you read the report and you disagree with us, I think you have to say we've been fair-minded in addressing what these arguments are. Yes, many religious appointees view this as, you know, sort of an act of service. They think they're doing a good thing and bringing this moral insight to local authority decision-making. You know, they may have an assumption of their moral superiority, and that's fine if that motivates them to get involved in the same way everyone else does. But that's not a basis for them having that extra privileged, special inside role. Mm. So it's the, yeah, I suppose it's the sort of, assumption enshrined in legislation that they do have this moral insight which is at least a questionable assertion let's say um they i suppose they also argue that this is about representing religious people and uh, I, I suppose you well, responded to that uh, as well obviously uh, as you say in the report the way in which these religious appointees are st- and the reserve places are structured is 
completely at odds with the, the modern religion and belief landscape in, in Scotland. Scotland is, like the rest, of the, rest, the rest of Britain, has become a majority non-religious country, but it's also become incredibly religiously diverse. Uh, I think about 93 of, of about 96 of these seats are appointed by uh, Christian organisations. Uh, and, you know, the appointees of religious organisations don't represent religious people. Religious people uh, and non-religious people are perfectly capable of representing themselves. They are perfectly capable of going to council meetings, getting involved, and, you know, they're perfectly capable of running for office. And if they've got that moral superiority, which they talk so much about, surely the voters will recognise this. Okay, so um, what, what do you think are our chances of making progress on this then? Well, as you know, Chris, I'm always an optimist. Um, actually, no, I, I do think this is an issue where we can make progress on, simply because you know it, it's such a ridiculous and incongruous situation. Uh, the example in, in Perth and Kinross really brought it to the public attention. So uh, up until now, the Scottish government, they've been you know, very dismissive of calls for change. But these are only going to grow as the campaign gets more attention. And, you know, Scotland continues to become more religiously diverse and more non-religious. Our report sets out the way forward. Um, ultimately, this will require legislative change at Holyrood. Um, but we can make progress by individual councils removing voting privileges. Uh, by the time this episode goes out, we should know what the decision at Edinburgh City Council was. And um, we will continue to receive feedback and to lobby local councils as well as MSPs. Uh, in England and Wales, we have uh, SACRAs, which are standing advisory councils on religious education, and they fulfil sort of quite a similar role. Uh, they also have special seats reserved for uh, for particular religious groups and then for religious groups in general. And in England and Wales, we've seen how the campaign to open these up to uh, humanist representatives has weakened the argument against SACRAs. So the fact that all major humanist or atheist groups in Scotland have uh, rejected the idea of non-religious appointees means that that sort of flawed compromise can't be put forward. And that will continue to leave, you know, if you buy into the idea, which you completely reject, of religious groups being represented, of the largest religious group in Scotland, the non-religious, not being represented. Uh, if you want to help us make progress, then please visit our campaign page. Uh, there'll be a link in the description uh, where you can download the report and sign the petition. Um, of course, if you live in Scotland, it'd be really helpful if you can write to your MSP and councillor. And again, there'll be links to that on the campaign page. Thank you very much. Now we turn to some other issues we've been campaigning on in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Alistair Lichton and I are now joined by Megan Manson, our campaigns officer. Hi, Megan. Hi. Uh, so, Megan, you can report that we've had a bit of success on vaccinations. Um, that's right. So, at the end of July, uh, there were reports in the press that some Muslim parents were refusing to let their children take part in a flu vaccination drive and that was because the vaccine uh, contained pork gelatin and in response to this Public Health England made a statement saying that they encourage parents to seek advice from their faith leaders about whether to vaccinate their child and we did a little research and found other documents produced by Public Health England that also advise religious parents consult with faith leaders regarding vaccines. So we wrote to Public Health England questioning this advice and we raised the point that telling parents to consult religious leaders sends a confusing and potentially harmful message 
and it could undermine Public Health England's mission to protect and improve the nation's health and reduce health inequalities. So we were therefore happy to receive a response from Public Health England that they'd taken our concerns on board and that they changed their booklet on vaccines and pork gelatin uh, to remove the advice about consulting a faith leader. And they said they wanted to make it clear that they recommend using scientific evidence to help when deciding whether or not to vaccinate. It's a really welcome outcome and reflects the fact that religious teaching often clashes with best medical practice. So this seems like a bit of a win, uh, or at least a welcome reversal in Public Health England's position. Um, and with the number of children who are going back to school without vaccinations at the moment, this seems particularly important that, uh, yeah, that, that PHE's mission to get children vaccinated isn't undermined. We've seen vaccinations being undermined by religious exemptions in America as well. Um, Alice, you wanted to say something about that? Yeah, no, we've got, a, there's a, there are specific outbreaks in areas where you have a high uh, proportion of people from Jewish Orthodox and Islamic backgrounds, where religious leaders often opposing vaccinations which contain uh, derivatives of pork, of pork gelatin. Obviously, some religious leaders, uh, you know, take a much more, much more, much more sensible view on that. Um, I want to set the point that this does tie into education issues because so much of our vaccination program is delivered through schools. So we need to consider the impact that of unregistered illegal faith schools, which are particularly concentrated in those communities. And you know, I doubt very much they're participating in these vaccination programs. And sorry, Megan, just turning back to you then, um, we've had some success with getting the healthcare authorities to reconsider their deference to religion before. Yeah, that's right. Um, last year, we discovered that the NHS Choices website was giving advice for people um, who wanted to fast on Ramadan. And that in itself isn't an issue at all. But the problem was that the advice given was put together by a team of Islamic scholars working with medical experts. And as a result, it drew heavily on Islamic theology rather than pure medical opinion. So, for example, it said um, Muslim experts have differing opinions on whether or not someone can use an asthma inhaler during Ramadan. And it said that people on dialysis should perform a fidya, which is a, a paying a form of compensation for missing the fast. And it also said that children are required, in quotes, to fast uh, once they reach puberty. So we wrote to the NHS Choices website asking them to review this advice and to remove the references to theological teachings so that it complies with their own policy of providing objective, impartial and evidence-based information on healthcare. And following our request for a review, um, NHS Choices has removed the uh, Ramadan advice. So I think this case and the, uh, the previous case regarding vaccines show that public health authorities are, are willing to listen and to engage with secularist arguments when we make the case that faith and healthcare, healthcare can often clash. We still have a lot of work to do in removing religious interference from healthcare, which is why we have a dedicated secular medical forum, and it's why um, healthcare is a prime campaign area for us. But little victories like these are encouraging, and they demonstrate that change is most definitely possible. It sounds like, as with so many aspects of religious privilege, you can have people sort of acting out of the best of intentions. You can kind of you see the thinking behind it, but they've just not properly thought through those implications. And so often we're you know the ones who have to point out actually you no, know, you get what you're doing here. You're probably 
coming from the right place, but you haven't actually thought through. And these problems come back with this idea that you engage people through religion rather than as, you know, people. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That is exactly what's happened here, is that we've been the only ones to say, hang on a second, you know, we, we understand that what you're doing is out of a, you know, it, it's, it's well intended, but there are some implications that you might not have considered. Um, so, yes, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah, so I suppose the message is that public health must come before religious concerns. Uh, the interests of patients and the interests of the wider public have to take precedence over religion. Now, uh, on a separate note, Alistair, you'd like to talk about an independent Jewish school with an eye-openingly restrictive policy towards families. Yeah, um, this is a story that we did a lot. Of, we've reported on in the last week and did most of the work on last month. It's uh, Bayes Hanuk, a independent Jewish Orthodox school, which close readers of our website may remember us criticised them in the past for an extremely uh, restrictive uh, textbook censoring program and you know quite restricted uh, secular curriculum which breached the independent school standards uh, so we wrote to the government uh, as I said last month in this case it was specifically about uh, Jewish Orthodox schools uh, both private and you know state funded as well and some of the ways in which they are seeking to control the family lives of their pupils, and in a way which goes far, far beyond you know, any conceivably legitimate educational purpose. So let's hear the examples then. <laughs> uh, requiring parents to never let their children touch a smartphone. Yep. Um, requiring parents and families to uh, seek the school's approval what DVDs they want to have in the home requiring the inst installation of an app which uh, allows the school to monitor the use of their internet-enabled devices. Uh, I mean, read this policy on our website. It, it's truly bizarre. Um, with all the pressure on members of this community to attend these schools and, you know, not to speak out against problems, these schools, and again, very often, though not in this case, state-funded, they're acting as instruments of social control. And unfortunately, the government are simply not interested in taking action. They have told us that examples like this don't breach independent school standards and are you know, simply a matter of a contract between uh, parents and the school. It ignores the whole context of this social pressure. And, you know, it ignores just how extreme these policies are. We are working with brave dissidents within this community. Uh, but unfortunately, the government just doesn't seem interested in protecting these uh, pupils' rights in education and, you know, families' right to a private life. Yeah, OK. So the government, uh, part of the government's defence seems to be, well, it's an independent school, which, uh, I mean, I think, I think like, we all agree that given the extreme nature of the sort of crackdown, and uh, as I think you very well put it there, the level of social control being exercised um, is not a sufficient reason. But this is also happening uh, in state schools too, or at least, at least similar policies are being used in state schools. Yes, and we're seeing admissions uh, policies being used to uh, try and counter and to put down dissent within the community. And you know, it's very easy for people... You know, and like, like us, we, we oppose faith schools. We do want to get rid of, of state-funded faith schools. And it, it might be easy for us or for people who aren't in the community to just say, mm, well, you know, don't like this, them bossing you around, don't go to those schools. 
that really does ignore the level of social pressure which is often brought to bear. And I would also say it is completely unreasonable to have policies that violate basic human rights. You know, it doesn't matter whether or not it's a contract between the school and, and parents. So, you know, the government is trying to wash their hands with this one when they are completely ignoring that these are fundamental human rights we're talking about here, the right to a private life, the right to free expression and the right to a basic education for children. So it's just unbelievable that... Um, the government are not taking this a bit more seriously. Um, so just to move on again, uh, I'd just like to raise uh, a letter which we sent to the government last week on blasphemy laws. Um, now, Megan, you monitor statements by ministers in Parliament and over recent months, you noticed a trend in their language on this, which we picked up on. That's right. Um, this has been going on for some time. Um, so blasphemy laws in theocratic countries like Pakistan are often raised in Parliament. Uh, the case of Azia Bibi, um, who's a Pakistani Christian who very narrowly escaped the death penalty for allegedly blasphemy against the Islamic prophet Muhammad, um, that case frequently came up last year. And while, of course, it's a good thing that politicians show concerns about blasphemy laws around the world, the language around the issue is troubling. Again and again, I found examples of politicians referring to an abuse of blasphemy laws or a misuse of blasphemy laws. These statements are concerning because they imply that there's a legitimate use of blasphemy laws, which of course there isn't. All blasphemy laws are incompatible with the fundamental human rights to freedom of expression. And for that reason, we should be calling for the repeal of blasphemy laws everywhere. We shouldn't be suggesting that there is ever an acceptable use of blasphemy laws because all use of blasphemy laws is abuse. Yeah, so we've written to the government to raise this um, and we're making the argument that the best way to defend those who face religious persecution is as you just said there, Megan, to stand for the repeal of blasphemy laws. Um, there is no legitimate use for a blasphemy law. The existence of a blasphemy law um, is just de facto wrong. So, yeah, we, we've been calling for their repeal. So we accept that some cases are more severe and urgent than others, but, um, yeah, the government shouldn't normalise the idea that blasphemy laws are fine unless they are misused. There's also a related point, which... Um, we often talk about people being falsely accused of blasphemy. And, and to my mind, that seems like it's legitimizing a sort of victim blaming. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like saying, you oh, know, the person was falsely accused of wearing too short a skirt. This, you know, you, that is legitimizing the idea that there is an appropriate, real, legitimate function of these laws. Yes, yeah, so this is uh, something that we've raised recently um, and we'll try and keep our listeners updated if we hear anything back. But uh, ministers from across government have been using this in the Lords and in the Commons. So it's clearly a very deliberate uh, policy. Um, Megan and Alistair, thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers, Chris. Thank you for joining us on the NSS podcast. There's a link to our report on religious appointees, which is called Religious Reps, Unrepresentative, Unnecessary and Unjustified, in the show notes. You can also find links to our reporting on what you've just heard and information on how to support the NSS. We'll see you next time.